But if you will not listen to me and do not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do any of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for the land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads may be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not (coughs) turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. (coughs) And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that you shall uh, that shall ex- execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of you... Of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, that I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe their sword after you. And your land shall be desolation, and your cities shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. For the rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send... Faintness, faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a derivant leaf shall put them to flight, 
and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. Then shall stumble one over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations. And the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also walk in contrary to me, so I walked in con- contrary to them, and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbaths, what it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and bring my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules that the Lord made himself between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful to be here in the house of your worship. I'm grateful to be the one standing here um, communicating your word back to your people. I pray that you will use this service as a sweet incense to you, a sweet sound to your ears. Lord, and I pray that uh, we glorify you in our, uh, my teaching and, and our hearing of your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So I'm kicking off a series in Daniel, and uh, my intent is to progress through Daniel by doing uh, maybe once a month uh, a sermonette or a sermon during prayer service, um, and then fill in the pulpit as needed within the church. But um, uh, by kicking off a book, by kicking off the book of Daniel, uh, this, this requires a little bit of legwork done on the front end. We, we need to set up what's going on in the book of Daniel. And, um, and so, uh, bless our brother Paul, that's a long passage I gave him. And we're, we're covering the first two verses of Daniel, and we didn't even read that because two verses um, was going to be short, and I needed this passage read. And so th- I'm grateful for our brother Paul. And when I started to think about how do we do an intro to a book and an intro to a series, I started thinking through, okay, Nick did... Exodus, but the intro to that was Genesis, so I can't preach through a whole book to intro a book. And then what did he do for Genesis? I thought, well, there was no existence of anything for Genesis, so the intro was God. That's, that is the intro. And, um, and then for Mark, I thought, well, 
There's 400 years of silence before the book of Mark. So what's the model here? And, and the reality is, I think what's actually best here is to, to look at the book of Daniel as it fits into biblical theology. So in a moment, we're actually going to look at where it fits in line with what our brother Nick has been preaching and what our uh, brother Pete has been preaching. Um, and we're going to go through where Daniel stands in biblical theology. And then we're going to work our way through some essential details. And ultimately, we're going to see what these two verses and all of these elements add up for us and what God has us to learn from the first two verses of Daniel. So before actually getting into Daniel, and I promise I will read some verses out of Daniel here in a little bit, um, but uh, we're going to look at where Daniel stands in biblical theology. So for those who don't know, biblical theology might sound like, isn't that all theology that comes from the Bible? And the reality is, yes, that's true to a certain sense, but typically, biblical theology is used in contrast to systematic theology. So systematic theology focuses in on a doctrine, usually on one topic. It's usually topical in nature. And then biblical theology is the overarching storyline. It's the connection and more of a historical lens. My hands naturally do this um, because um, the theologian Gerhardus Voss said, um, is known for describing system, uh, biblical theology as drawing a line of progression, a line of development, whereas systematic theology draws a circle. So systematic theology zooms in on a piece of the line, and biblical theology is the line. So where does Daniel, the book of Daniel, set on that line? Where does it set on that line of theology? And what better way to look at that than to look at what we've been faithfully getting taught by our brother Nick and our brother Pete? And so uh, let's look into that. And you'll notice on the back of your bulletin, you have an uh, outline. And when we get to the second point, uh, excuse me, the... Um, the third point, you're going to need that insert as well. But for biblical theology, well, tell me if this sounds familiar in relation to what Pastor Nick has been preaching. A young man is taken into slavery in a foreign nation. He rises to prominence through God-given wisdom. He is second to the chief ruler until the envious turn on him and attempt to kill him. He is raised up to even greater status by interpreting the dream of the king that even the magicians could not interpret. He uses his status to secure the well-being for the children of Israel. He directly preceded the exodus of God's people from exile into the promised land. Who does this sound like? We have a second Joseph here. We have a second Joseph. So you see a direct connection to what Nick preached through with Joseph. And as we're going to see further, every circumstance of the book of Daniel, and Daniel's life specifically, we'll see it in the first two verses, are a direct consequence of um, the, the covenant established by God with Moses and to the people of Judah through, through Moses. And so that's where our passage in Leviticus 26 that our brother Paul read for us comes from. It is, uh, it is going to set the foundation for everything that is the book of Daniel. So then in relation to what Pastor Pete has been preaching, actually the most, some of the most recent um, portions of Mark that he's been preaching through are... Um, a direct commentary of sorts by Jesus on the book of Daniel. So if you wouldn't mind, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read some portions out of Daniel, and then we're going to read a verse out of, out of Mark. I and mean, we're going to see these connections and some of these similarities. We're not going to get into breaking down what they mean or exposing necessarily on that verse themselves, but I want you to see the connections between um, this biblical theology, this grander perspective of what 
Pastor Pete has been preaching and how it connects to all of scripture. So in Mark 13, um, we have the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is giving the Olivet Discourse. And in Daniel 12, 11, uh, we read, and from, that, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up there, there shall be 1,290 days. And then if we look in Daniel uh, chapter, uh, uh, excuse me, in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, we see, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing there, where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We'll, We'll come back to that particular passage in a moment in the Matthew account. But then again, in Daniel 12, verse 1, keep stay in Mark. We're going to be looking a little further in Mark 13 in a moment. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such has never been seen, or has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then in Mark um, chapter 13, and we're going to look at starting in verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So again, we're seeing these connections um, between the book of Daniel, in this case, the visions um, of, of Daniel 12 and Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. But this goes even further. I'm going to read out of Daniel 7 and read um, about the Son of Man in Daniel 7:13. And go ahead and stay in Mark. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And then in Mark um, 13, uh, 24 through 27, we'll hear the words from the Son of Man. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So we can see a direct connection between what's going on in the book of Daniel and what's going on through what our pastor um, is preaching to us in Mark 13. And to leave no doubt, hey, maybe these are just similar words. We're going we're gonna to see Jesus himself talk about Daniel. If you want to turn to Matthew 24, you're welcome to. Um, Matthew 24, 15. This is the same account, all of that discourse, but from the perspective of the book of Matthew. Matthew 24, 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken, by the, uh, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then it continues on with all of that discourse. But Jesus himself calls out uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So praise the Lord, we have a book here, just like all of scripture, that is so interweaved with the rest of scripture. This isn't coincidence um, that, that you look in scripture and you see the connections. But as far as a framing point for us as we get into the book of Daniel, I think it's helpful to see how this fits in with the rest of our preaching and our teaching. 
All right. So um, as we uh, as we move on into the book of Daniel, as we actually embark on the book of Daniel, we have some essential details that we need to cover. Um, so the first of which is going to be literary genre. Um, so the, the first one that people might think of or usually comes to mind is narrative. This is the stuff of veggie tales, chocolate bunnies and um, people, uh, veggies in a fiery furnace and the sort. The narrative is the outlining of the story, typically the first half of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. And then after that or along the way, we have prophecy as well. So we just heard Jesus call Daniel a prophet. And Daniel prophesies of the future, both in the reading of and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, as well as many other opportunities. And then um, perhaps maybe what you think of is apocalyptic. Daniel is our only, what's considered generally our only apocalyptic book of the Old Testament. There are apocalyptic passages in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, many of these other books, but Daniel has a large portions of apocalyptic literature. And as we progress through the book of Daniel, we'll see it, ha- it is an incredible primer for the book of Revelation. And so um, some of these things that are, we're going to have to wade through and work our way through that are maybe challenging topics um, will help us hopefully understand our scriptures even better um, outside of the book of Daniel as well. And then lastly, you may not think of this when you think of Daniel, but it's also a poetic book. It's a book of poetry. So our modern Bibles highlight the poetry um, uh, for most of our modern Bibles by doing indentation. You'll see lots of white space surrounding the edges of writing. And in Daniel, in particular, you'll see it when Nebuchadnezzar screams out the the praise of Yahweh and screams out the praise of God and, and bends the knee to God. He's doing it in the form of poetry. And then again, we see in apocalyptic literature, all over the apocalyptic literature is poetry. Um, so we'll get the chance to see, to see that as well. As far as the languages, this is perhaps one of the areas in which Daniel is most unique. Daniel starts off in Hebrew, and then it switches to Aramaic in the fourth, middle of the fourth, fourth verse of the second chapter. And then it switches back to Hebrew at the beginning of chapter 8 um, in the book of Daniel. In addition, it has loan words from Persian, Akkadian, and Greek. Okay? The loan words are easy to tackle. It's, a, it's, a, it's Babylon. They've conquered many nations. There are lots of people in there brought into the language. Um, it makes sense. There's lots of different idioms or phrases. We use loan words all the time. But the transition from language to language is, at minimum, a curiosity. Like, why switch? Why switch then? And why switch back? Uh, Every commentary tries to take a stab at this, and I would say many of the commentaries go on the side of maybe it's an environmental circumstance. Daniel comes in as a young Hebrew, Hebrew is his language, he's in exile, but then gets established in the court, so he speaks Greek, um, or excuse me, speaks uh, Aramaic, and then later on in life as we start focusing on the end of the exile and the return of the Jews to, his, uh, to Israel and the tribe of Judah to Israel. He's now focused back on the return and back to his starting nation, and, and so it's Hebrew again. And it could be. It could be. But I think that it is, I think there's more to it than that. And many other commentaries might not even put that effort into it. Many of them actually just stated, you know what, it's circumstantial. It just happened to be what he wrote in. But I think there's absolutely an intent in the language and the way it's written. 
And if you want to know more about that, stay for prayer service. <laughs> we'll get a little Bible nerdy there um, and look at, at what we call chiasm and um, how it focuses on the chapter 7 of Daniel. Um, that's what I believe confidently that the structure of these languages is to highlight the Son of Man and his coming and conquering the adversary. Okay, so last few details here before we actually get in our passage. And um, another one that I just, I could not, I, could, I couldn't um, avoid is the year in which it's written. So this is a big deal for us as Christians, those of us who hold the Bible as inerrant. Um, there are many historians and theologians who would argue that the book of Daniel is written in what's called the late date, so essentially in the 100s B.C., the issue, um, the, the issues they see that causes them to believe it's written in this time period is that Daniel gets progressively through the book. We'll see he gets more detailed, and he is accurate. I mean, he's a prophet. He's accurate in his, in his um, prophecy. But the details that he's accurate about are the most uh, at their peak in um, the end of the book. And so the idea is that, well, if he goes from more general to more detailed and very accurate and very detailed. Um, it must be that he's a historian writing from the perspective as if, as a literary tool, as if he is a theolo- uh, prophet, and he's writing as a historian looking back, writing to the details. And naturally, the details that happened more recently in history, he'd be more familiar with and could be more, more detailed. But to me, I would say our entire Bible crumbles if you believe that, um, and I think um, you are... You'd have to do some serious stances to avoid it, but you are basically calling Jesus a liar. We read that Jesus called Daniel a prophet, not a historian pretending to be a prophet and trying to pawn off prophecy as his own, but instead as a genuine prophet. Beyond that, we have evidences of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel happens in the 500s BC, and he references Daniel three times. Well, if Daniel comes 400 years later, it's rather hard to reference that unless he's prophesying about the future, but none of it is prophecy. It's in reference to Daniel the person. Um, There's a whole lot more that goes into the dating of of the writing of a book, but this is essential because there's, there are many who would argue this, and this is almost the first thing on any study of Daniel that comes up is what date is it written because so much lies on it. But I will say, I will take the easy road and say I stand with Jesus and I will call Daniel a prophet and not a his, just a historian. And so I feel confident and we will move forward understanding that Daniel was written in the 500s um, as the events unfolded and on the things of the future that are a later date, those are the things of prophecy, not of personal experience. Okay, so let's actually get talk about the book of Daniel and the content itself in that what are the themes? What are we going to learn about um, as we study through the book of Daniel? So the first main theme, uh, the first theme is the main theme, and that is the kings of earth, our suffering, our salvation, and all of history bow to the authority of God. Again, that's the kings of earth, our suffering, and salvation, and all of history bow to the authority of our God. And I would say the secondary theme, where you'll see a lot of application of particular in the narrative, is that Daniel is an Old Testament model of how to live in a world opposed to God. Daniel is not a zealot. He is not undermining and trying to bring down Babylon with every conspiring word. No, he actually brings wealth and prosperity to Babylon, 
through being working as unto the Lord. And yet, Daniel knows where to draw the line. He knows what is commanded of his, him by his God, and he draws the line appropriately. And so I think Daniel will be a fantastic model for us on how to live in our current time as exiles of earth, um, and one day hoping to return to our promised land where we will be with Christ. Okay, so we have a lot of details about the general, about the book of Daniel. Let's get into the book of Daniel. I'm going to turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, uh, to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So, if you look at um, your, the first verse of Daniel, there's a comma for every translation, I believe, that most of us use outside of King James after the word Judah. So Jehoiakim, king of Judah. From that comma to the end of the second verse I read, 18 years pass, three sieges, um, two plunderings of the house of God. Uh, we then also have um, three different kings of Judah and two rebellions. That all happens in a sentence and a half. Um, and this is the type of thing that if you were a Jew growing up in a, your rabbinical school, you're getting taught the things of history. This is your, for us, maybe American history. This is your history in addition to your theology. And so they, they would know what's going on here. And so um, we're going to actually go back and do our best to look through Second Kings and understand what is happening. Why are they in exile? And ultimately, why will they return from exile? So to, to understand the foundation of all of this, we're going to go back to 2 Kings. So I encourage you to turn to 2 Kings, grab out your handout. We're going to start making um, some progress through, through some history, um, through some history with the kings. What I'd say is this, to preface you for the speed at which we're about to move through kings and dates and things done, this is not about the date. This is not about memorizing reigns of kings. This is not about those, those elements. God lined out in the Leviticus passage to Moses the consequences of disobeying his covenant. He also outlined the path to returning to, to repentance and the blessings of repentance in that covenant. So for Daniel and Israel, or in this case, the tribe of Judah to be in exile, it took very specific disobedience to God and the breaking of a covenant. All right, so let's look at Second uh, Kings. We're going to be in chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 6, and we're going to see how Israel is ripped out of the kingdom. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So we have the Assyrians. They come in. They take over Israel. They're taking them with them. They're, they're taking them to be slaves and to be exiles. We then see in um, a few verses later, in 2 Kings 17, 18, it says about, about Israel, Therefore Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. 
So the tribe of Judah, this is where David, David's line is from and where ultimately our Savior would be born from, the, the line of Judah. And so we see Israel's taken out and Judah's left. Unfortunately, in the very next verse, we see the poison of idolatry that Israel had creeps into the, into the borders of Judah. In verse 19 of 2 Kings 17, we read, Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh, their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So at, at this point, Israel has introduced a poison that will take time and will creep over the tribe of Judah. During this time period, we have Hezekiah as the king of, of Judah. Hezekiah is a faithful king. Um, he's a faithful king. And because of his faithfulness to Yahweh, he destroys high places he removes these places of idol worship, that the same things that, that Israel um, was punished for, the breaking of the covenant as laid out in Leviticus 26. And Yahweh, as a result, sends down the angel of the Lord to strike down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So the Assyrians made it through Israel, but they didn't make it to, to Judah. Um, even in that account, you'll read in 2 Kings, the Assyrians are taunting the Judeans, saying, if Israel couldn't stand, if all these other nations could, couldn't stand, how could you? And the answer is the faithfulness of King Hezekiah, and ultimately the God to reward that faithfulness with the protection of his people. So then Hezekiah, um, uh, being faithful, we see uh, a lot of success, years added on to his life as a result. And I'm turning a couple pages to 2 Kings 20. We're going to look at 12 through 18. And Hezekiah through his, um, was faithful in his life, but not sinless. And we will see this in um, the account. And the first time we're getting reference to what will happen in the book of Daniel. In 2 Kings 20, 12 through 18, Hezekiah has a moment of pride and shows off his great wealth. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and present, and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to them, What did these men say? And where did they come to, uh, from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they, they have come from a far country from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show him, show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who, come, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we see here that the foretelling of what is eventually the first two verses of Daniel. So after Hezekiah, we have Manasseh. Um, and I believe the actions of Manasseh have direct connections to the activities of today, um, all the way down to Roe v. Wade and abortion, um, the actions of shedding innocent blood. Manasseh was Hezekiah's son, but he was not a faithful son, and he was not a faithful, faithful to his God. He rebuilds the high places. He reinstitutes idol worship. He defiles the house of God by sacrificing and burning his own son. 
And ultimately, he has brought in, uh, he has broken the covenant that Yahweh lined out to Moses in Leviticus 26, the same way Israel did. And we read in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 16, And Yahweh said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the days their father came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So we're seeing these connections. Back to our Leviticus 26 passage that our brother Paul read, we're seeing these connections of a covenant and defilement of the covenant, and the specific actions of the shedding of innocent blood. Innocence, shedding of innocent blood will beget more violence, and Um, the judgment will be directly referenced to the shedding of innocent blood. Manasseh has a son, Ammon. He reigned in Judah for two years. He also does what's evil in the sight of God. He dies at the age of 24, leaving the eight-year-old Josiah to reign as king over Judah. Praise the Lord, Josiah was a faithful king. I'm turning to uh, 2 Kings 23 here. He's a faithful king, and he tears down the high places. Um, he uh, restores the people to faith and reaffirms the covenant that uh, reaffirms the covenant that exists between God and His people. Not only that, Josiah reaffirms, um, reinstalls the practice of the Passover, something that even the kings um, had not had not been um, continuing the practice of that our brother Nick has been preaching on. Um, I encourage you, if you're a guest, go on our website, listen to what our, our pastor Nick has been preaching on. The Passover right now, as far as the Passover, we're told that it should stand forever. Um, that is obviously until the, a new Passover um, is done in the, in the body of, of Christ. But in this case, it's not being done until Josiah, a faithful king, reinstalls it. So I'll read um, in 2 Kings 23, 21 through 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. (coughs) Excuse me. So we see he reinstalls it. And we're even told later that he is the most faithful of all the kings, more faithful than David. First of all, he's reinstalled um, the Passover, but... In general, the Lord passes um, judgment, and he judges well of Josiah. We read in verse um, 25, Before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the laws of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. 
But Yahweh had installed a covenant through Moses, and it had been broken. And judgment had been declared because of the breaking of that covenant. What would happen? And even the faithfulness of Josiah would not stop the faithfulness of Yahweh to judge. We see in the very next verse after declaring him the most faithful king, verse 26, still Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen Jerusalem and the house of which I said, my, sh- my name shall be there. We are seeing a faithful covenant keeping God. And that faithfulness is, includes the faithfulness to judge. We see um, after Josiah, um, after Josiah dies, um, we see that his um, son uh, is installed king, Jehoahaz. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, the son uh, Jehoahaz is made king, um, and uh, Jehoahaz is made king as a result, actually, of Pharaoh Necho having killed Josiah. So Egypt comes in and conquers Judah and makes Judah a vassal state. So for those who aren't familiar with vassal states, essentially, think of uh, taxation versus enslavement. Um, for the most part, usually being a vassal means you continue ruling yourself, but you are paying massive wealth, and you're giving your wealth to your sovereign nation. Um, And so in this case, Israel becomes a vassal state. When Pharaoh Necho kills Josiah, he makes Jehoahaz, Josiah's son, king, and um, uh, he's evil um, and does not last uh, very long. Um, We, in fact, see that he lasts three months before Pharaoh Necho um, goes undue and puts in a different son of Josiah um, as, as king. Um, but, Jeho- but even then, Jehoahaz is marked as doing evil in the sight of God in the three months of his reign. All right. So at this point, we have Judah as an as a, um, object, as a piece of, tr- of the treasure house of, of Egypt. And we're finally getting to some Nebuchadnezzar action, some Daniel action. We're getting to Babylon, even though this is all connected. And in 605, the Battle of Carchemish happens. It's a battle between Egypt and Babylon, and Babylon wins. In that victory, Nebuchadnezzar now takes ownership of the tribe of Judah, takes over the vassalship. And um, at this time, from uh, Jehoiakim, who was the installed brother as king, um, he has three years of servanthood to Nebuchadnezzar, But then he decides to rebel. He wants independence for Judah and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So when you see the beginning in uh, in our Daniel passage, um, when I turn to our Daniel passage, it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is that time. But from the time in which he comes to besiege, we see that Nebuchadnezzar... um, uh, that for five years, Jehoiakim is able to resist Babylon. Um, and it isn't until God's sovereign timing for the punishment of the sins of Manasseh that the tribe of Judah falls, that Jerusalem falls. In 2 Kings 24, verses 1 through 4, we see it's the direct consequences of the sins of Manasseh and the shedding of innocent blood. 2 Kings 24, 1 through 4. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. 
Then he turned and rebelled against him. And Yahweh sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites, bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh that he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Specifically, Jeremiah, we see this exact prophecy of many nations coming to destroy them. It continues on in verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of Yahweh to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh would not pardon. Again, I repeat, God is a covenant-keeping God. The judgment that he expressed would be done by breaking the covenant, all of it is coming to pass. Every word of what he has prophesied, and all the prophecies from his prophets along the way, whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, or others, is coming to pass. The consequence is the book of Daniel. It's the exile and the book of Daniel. So then um, Babylon has, has, after five years of resistance, um, Babylon um, has conquered. Uh, Jehoiakim dies. Jehoiakim, his son, is made king of Judah. And that lasts three months before Nebuchadnezzar himself joins these mercenaries, these other nations, comes in and besieges Israel, or besieges Judah, excuse me, the tribe of Judah and Jerusalem. He takes, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiakim, so the son of Jehoiakim, um, who was the son of Josiah. He takes him into custody, into Babylon, and um, dis- installs Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, as the king of what remains in Judah. And after nine years of rule, Zedekiah rebels against Babylon. But Zedekiah was a wicked king, and in 2 Kings twenty four nineteen. I'm going to read a little bit through the next uh, first couple verses of the next chapter. We read, And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by king, the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arava. So um, we see here that there's starvation, famine, Pestilence, you betcha. All the things that are prophesied as a consequence of breaking of the covenant. And we saw in the passage our brother Paul read in Leviticus, it was a progression. We saw, if you don't do this, this is what I will do. If you still have not learned from my discipline, here is what I will do. If you still have not learned, here is what I will do. And he continues and continues. All these things are coming to pass. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not... Uh, He is the tool of God. God is allowing Nebuchadnezzar to come in and do this. He is using Nebuchadnezzar to execute his judgment. But Nebuchadnezzar himself is not innocent in this, and it's consequential for the book of Daniel. It's consequential for these two verses that we read. Nebuchadnezzar, we read first. I'm going to jump back at his role in 2 Kings 24. So I'm jumping back a page. In 24, 11 through 13, we read um, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing Um, not just conquering, but devastating the house of God. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of Yahweh, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made and Yahweh, as Yahweh had foretold, He carried away all Jerusalem and all officials and the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried um, away Jehoiakim, king of Babylon, uh, king to Babylon. So we we see there this this taking of this absolute plundering of the house of God is done by Nebuchadnezzar. And there will be judgment for Nebuchadnezzar for this. And Nebuchadnezzar again... For during Zedekiah's reign, so again, during these verses, we have lots of years of sieging going on, multiple sieges. Um, in 2 Kings 25, 8 through 15, our, our uh, last uh, 2 Kings passage here, I promise, uh, 25, 8 through 15, we read, in the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Zebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of, the, of Yahweh and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon. Together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of Yahweh, the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense, all vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The firepans also and the bowls. What was gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was silver as silver. These are instruments of the worship of Yahweh, and they're being taken away. Okay, I know that's a lot of history. Um, I will tell you, understanding this and sitting and going through some of the timelines of these things, it's just, I I'm, can't help but be amazed that what God has done in preserving this history. Because by knowing all of this covenant breaking, all of the um, actions of Babylon in this, all the actions of Nebuchadnezzar, we can now understand the first two verses of, of Daniel. So I, with this in mind, I'm going to go back to Daniel, and we're going to read those first two verses one more time. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. All, through all of this, Nebuchadnezzar now has not just plundered the house of God twice. He hasn't just broken down these elements of worship. He's not just burned down the house of God. He has now taken that which is tools of worship for Yahweh and put it into the place of worship for false gods. It doesn't get worse than this. They, they are going to use the tools of worship for Yahweh and worship false gods. 
And for that, Nebuchadnezzar will be punished. This is, this is why we see all of this history is known maybe by these, by these Jewish people that are waiting in hope of the promised Messiah, the promised son of man. They're reading this and they know this history and what's going on. And they now know this is why we will be redeemed because Yahweh has promised it if we repent, if we turn with our whole heart. And with this will come the judgment. We are experiencing the judgment of Judah as a breaking of the covenant. And we will also get to see the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar for his sin. And so with all of this, I would say to to the tribe of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, people of Redeemer, um, I tell you, our God is a jealous God. He's going to execute faithful judgment. So let's look um, at the passing of this judgment. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 25. Uh, We're going to read a portion from 25 and then 24. And we're going to hear the consequences and penalty of all of this covenant breaking and defilement from Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to hear the consequences and the sentencing laid out. uh, Hear the words of prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of Yahweh has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although Yahweh persistently sent you to all his servants, sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that Yahweh has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares Yahweh that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to harm to your own harm. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares Yahweh, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then for um, the judgment and sentencing of Nebuchadnezzar, we see of Babylon The ending of the 70 years will be a direct consequence because of the sin of Nebuchadnezzar. We see in Jeremiah 24, 8 through 10, so just a few verses before Jeremiah 25 starts. But thus says Yahweh, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt." I apologize. This is the judgment of Zedekiah specifically. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all places where I shall drive them and send them, will send them sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave that to them and their fathers. Um, the sentencing for Babylon 
is verses 12 through 14 of Jeremiah 25. So the continuation of where I had stopped before of the judgment of Israel. So it ended, if you remember, the whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Well, at the end of the 70 years, we're told, then after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares Yahweh, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So we're seeing the judgment is laid out. God is faithful to judge and uphold his covenant. God's law is being broken and judgment is being laid out. But praise God, God is not just faithful to judge, He's going to be faithful to his covenant and faithful to save as well for those that repent. And we see this. We see God promise this. This is the hope of Daniel. This is the hope of our scriptures. If you look in Jeremiah 24, 5 through 7, so this is right before the judgment he pronounces on Zedekiah. Jeremiah says, Then the word of Yahweh came to me. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, who I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Yahweh. I am, uh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart." Repentance is the, is the price of admission back into the promised land. And God is going to bring that repentance to happen. It is not the turning of the hearts of the people. It is God turning the hearts of the people. And so God, our Yahweh, is faithful to save and faithful to this covenant and to his people. But God gives no such promises to the unrepentant Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So, As we get going into the book of Daniel and and future prayer services and we make our way through some of the beloved stories maybe we told our children in Sunday school or were told as children in Sunday school about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Um, We have Daniel in the lion's den. And then we get into the visions and the wonderful things laid out in the visions. This history and this covenant that was broken, but God being faithful to both judge and to save, needs to be in our mind. And so um, to those of us here who maybe aren't a believer, um, maybe you haven't repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, as we've made our way through our service, you have been communicated the covenant, just as the people in the tribe of the tribe of Judah were communicated through Moses, through the law given at Mount Sinai, um, through Moses to the people of Judah. And as you've heard this, you've also heard the penalty for the opposition to God is death and eternal destruction. The destruction that will make ears tingle when it is spoken of. I implore you to turn with your whole hearts to God. We just heard the promise. We don't turn to God because of the fear of judgment, but we know the judgment and can turn wholeheartedly with hope and praise to God if we turn our whole heart. And then to my brothers and sisters in Christ, At times, we've been Josiah and faithfully worshiped our God. At other times, we've been Manasseh. Other times, we've been Jehoiakim or Hezekiah. And like the kings of Judah, we have failed to fulfill the law. 
And God still demands the justice lined out in his covenant with Moses. But we have Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law. The one who held up the covenant, who fulfilled the covenant, took on the punishment for those of us that did not fulfill the covenant. The law did not disappear. It was not just done away with, as our pastor Pete was preaching through the law today. No, it was fulfilled by Christ. And yet, his upholding of the covenant, he took the punishment for the covenant breakers. Praise our God. He has faithfully upheld this covenant. And so we as believers, we get to enjoy the benefits of that by having a new covenant made in the blood of the one who upheld the covenant that our forefathers could not keep and the one, the covenant we could not keep. So this is the beauty of the book of Daniel. As we get going into the book of Daniel, all of this history has come to bear. You have a people in exile and you have Daniel who will faithfully stand as God's prophet in the book of Daniel and he will communicate about the coming of this one who will fulfill the covenant and the coming of the one in whose blood our new covenant will be established. Let's pray. O great Yahweh, you have blessed us this day. You have given us the ability to come into your temple and worship. We are in exile in a pagan land. We are not in the presence of you in eternity, Lord, but we are in the presence of you with your spirit. Your spirit is here with us, allowing this worship. Lord, I pray that we will learn from the kings of the past, those who walked faithfully and those who walked as evil in your sight, Lord. I pray that it will allow us to understand the beauty and the importance of your law, that we might do our best to uphold the law. But yet, Lord, even though we know we cannot uphold the law, your son came for us. Let us understand and rejoice and be part of the celebration of the sacrifice that your son made on the cross so that we can be a part of the new covenant. I pray that you bless this congregation, allow them to go forward in their week knowing that they are in the new covenant. May you be glorified in all of this. In your son's name I pray. Amen.